Greetings. I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of Age of Invisible Machines, a book that explores the learnings of 20-year conversational AI veteran and OneReach AI CEO, Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversation we started in the pages of our book, which is the first bestseller about conversational AI. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about how software is getting cheaper and easier to produce and how that will disrupt and reshape large software companies. What will happen to incumbents like OpenTable when their space is flooded by hundreds, if not thousands of smaller competitors emboldened by AI? We're also curious how these disruptions will affect the ways VCs invest in technology. And we're luck because our guest this week is Jake Saper, general partner at Emergence Capital. Emergence has invested in companies worth more than $450 billion collectively, backing ventures like Zoom, Salesforce, Box, and Yammer. Jake joins the conversation as a successful investor who is quite hit to the challenges and opportunities presented by Generative AI. This is a super fun and jam-packed episode, so let's dive right in. All right. Well, Jake, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We are really looking forward to this conversation. Stoked to be here, Josh and Rob. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And Rob, pleasure as always seeing you once again in my on my computer screen yes, here. Yes, yes. That's, that's where I usually am. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We see each other a lot on this screen. So actually earlier today, Rob and I were having a conversation not on a screen, just over a phone. And we, we were kind of talking about, in terms of productivity, there are kind of like four basic interactions that we have with machines. Uh, there's browse and search and communicate and program. Uh, and it occurs to us that every single one of those uh, interactions is, is about to be disrupted majorly by conversational AI. I think in some instances that's, that's already well underway. Um, but kind of in that same moment, it seems like a lot of the analysts and investors that we talk with are still kind of looking at it in this point solution mindset. It still seems like there's a there's a, a, a tendency to want to hold on to a moment where you know each little piece of software was special and had a right to be really expensive. Um, so we thought it'd be interesting to kind of get your your take on on kind of where where the invest investment world is, and then also kind of where your thinking is around this technology. You know, this idea of enhancing our existing software with generative AI versus systemic, like rip it out, you know, what's your thoughts there? Is this, you know, it, how long is this going to last where we think that adding a motor to our bicycle is better than creating a car? <laughs> uh, it's a it's a good question. I mean, I, I can start by like framing this in the context of broader technology shifts as I see it, if that's helpful. Sure. Um, in... So my firm Emergence was founded in 2003 on a thesis that software would move from on-premise to the cloud. This is early in that transition, but that was obviously a very fundamental technology transition. Um, and largely that thesis has played out well. Uh, the first investment that the firm made in, in 04 was in Salesforce. And I think the reason why Salesforce, any reason why Salesforce was able to, to win in that era was um, it was really, really hard for the incumbents to, to adapt. Um, Right, it was really, really hard for uh, Siebel, the dominant CRM system of the time, to try to replatform the entire thing to move into the cloud. That's technically very challenging. Was also culturally, I think, difficult. And so, a lot of the incumbent players back in that tech transition died. Um, this is this is likely a, a tech transition of, of similar, or perhaps even greater magnitude than that one. But it is a, it is one in which incumbents are better suited to play. Um, which is hard to admit as a VC who funds startups. Um, <laughs> and I think you guys, obviously, it, it sounds like have a bet towards the, the newer players based upon the intro there. Um, I think that there are opportunities for newer startups to outrun incumbents in this, this, this era. But I do think that um, distribution advantages are real uh -uh. Uh, for incumbents. And I do think that it is easier to integrate this stuff into your tech stack than it was, for example, to integrate cloud software uh, back in 2003 uh, for an incumbent. So you are you are seeing most large software players have some sort of AI-enabled version of their product. I think we're still largely in tire-kicking mode to know like which of these things is actually going to have uh, real uplift or not. There, there are certain ones that it's it's quite clear, like GitHub Copilot is really um, 
you know, doing quite well and users really like the product. Um, whether or not the broader Microsoft Office Copilot suite um, gets the same kind of adoption is still very much anyone's bet. It probably will vary based upon how they price the packaging. Yeah, but but zooming back out for a second, um, it's still very early days to know how these incumbents um, are riding along their bicycles. That's uh, that's uh, to, to, to further the, the analogy, um, I do think that there are likely going to be some soft underbellies uh, for these bikes that give startups an opportunity to potentially uh, out outswim them or outbike them, outrace them. Sure, sure, um, sure. And I actually think like apropos of, of what you guys are into, I actually think that UX is uh, a core area in which incumbents may be vulnerable to startups well, in the age of generative AI. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on that. Um, I think that's, that is the downfall. They're not you know, as you say, they're prepared. I'd say, first of all, no, from a design standpoint, I don't think they are because they've never <laughs> adopted the design first. It's all paying lip service to it. Um, so I think very few of them are actually wired to care enough about the experience to to pivot. But the more concerning thing for me is the business model, charging a lot of money for things that will be very easy to create. Um, it's very hard to to let go of a revenue stream, right? And since we always see the adoption curve uh, being like, you know, small at the beginning and large at the tail, there'll always be this desire to exploit the late adopters by, you know, not dropping your prices, right? Because, so if- because I mean, we're so quarter by quarter, if you're public, that you know, telling the market you're going to spend, you know, six quarters going down so you can go back up seems to be a really, really tough message and a tough pill to swallow. Um, I think that's even hard for startups to tell their VCs, right? Sure. Um, yeah. I don't, I think that's a hard message no matter how, what size you are. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I think that's the thing that that concerns me. And you mentioned distribution being a thing. I don't disagree, but I do have a lot of ideas on how I think AI will disrupt distribution. And when you fundamentally pull the carpet out of distribution, then everything's upside down, right? Um, Because if that's not a thing, if that advantage is no longer an advantage because AI is able to find things that are good and rated well for you. In other words, we had a conversation with um, with Gardner, and they talked about you know a fifth, and I and I think it's going to be higher, but a fifth of the consumers' spending in the future is going to be done by robots, right? It's like we're going to have human consumers and robot consumers, and we see a lot of that today, like kayak and like who's actually buying? Is it is it the machine or is it the person? And is this just human in the loop when Kayak comes back and tells you the cheapest flight? You know, are, aren't we just a second away from just letting it decide? Um, so, so if machines become buyers, then then distribution becomes a given because they can evaluate a million products in you know minutes. Uh, based on reputation and make a decision. And so now the human, you know, condition of word of mouth and, you know, it was this thought that if my printer buys my ink automatically when it needs it and it buys it from the best place that has the highest quality and the best place that has the highest quality today is company A, but then company B comes out with something does company A go from a million orders a day to zero and company B goes from zero to a million orders a day? What what does life it, look like in that world? And um, it's just sort of an example of rethinking distribution. But anyway, I think I'm getting lost here, Josh. I think it depends on, it depends. Well, I'd like, I, Rob, I can, I can riff on a couple of things yeah. you said. So first is the pricing stuff. And the second is the distribution stuff. I'll start with distribution and then maybe go back to pricing. So on distribution, um, what you're describing is largely like a consumer consumption paradigm. Um, I tend to focus more on kind of B2B stuff, so selling to an enterprise. Um, and generally speaking, when you're buying there, 
um, it's not as much of a commodity purchase. Like if you're if you're talking about you know which uh, ink ink uh, to buy, that's relatively commoditized. And so I think you're right. I think AI will play a disruptive role in distribution there because comparing pricing and you know ink quantity and quality is a relatively straightforward thing to do. I think most things that that will be more on the commoditized end of things, where there's not a ton of differentiation between products, are likely to be bought by AI. Right. Right. Like right now, we already have like the Honey style uh, Chrome plugins that hover over and tell us like, hey, it's cheaper to go to this website exactly. to buy this thing. It's very clear to see how you can get to a place where it would just go yeah, and buy right, it for you. Right. Um, I think when you're when you're talking about selling something that's perhaps less commoditized, um, and I'd argue like certain SaaS products are are somewhat less commoditized. There are more things to consider. Uh, which is why you have like the G2s of the world right. and other things that like try to lay out the differences between things. It's possible. I think AI will likely play a role in assisting a human in making the decision, but my hunch is that a human will still play a yeah. meaningful role in, in the decision. So one thing um, I think is a sliding scale, but if you imagine that the UIs are gone, right now we're doing it conversationally. Um, so we've abstracted the UIs. Think of plugins on GPT, right? Um isn't most of that human decision about what interface and what integrations it has and and if all of those are just taken for granted integrations are now natural language so we don't have to worry about are you integrated because integrations are just a given and everyone's just going to access it through their conversational interface and maybe it's going to pull up graphical elements like of course it's not it's not all going to be linguistic but um then do we start commoditizing all this stuff essentially? Like in other words, I agree with you, the things that are not commoditized will, you know, will be human decisions. But are we gonna shift to a category of things? I I, I like to give the example of like communication channels. You know, we talk about email, we talk about WhatsApp, we talk about SMS, when we have these channel preferences. But when you put a conversational AI on top of that, I don't care how you're gonna tell Josh what time the meeting is I just need you to go tell Josh what time the meeting is um, and I, I care more about how you tell him like say it politely or s say it urgently uh, use email use whatever he uses like whatever he'll answer I really don't care um, and so now these preferences about which email client works better for me and which messenger i like or prefer is out the window because i'm all accessing it abstract it's all abstracted now and so then i don't care right now just choose for me to me a lot of the people that are struggling to understand the impact have never really realized how much and you said it earlier how much ux has really been a part of the buying decisions that companies are making you know they think they're buying back ends and features but so often they're buying front ends. And if those features aren't in the front end or easy to observe in the front end, they don't exist. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Like, I think that UX is an undersold, under, underweighted part of how people have made these decisions. Um, and my guess is that it will become less underweight in this new era as much of the stuff behind the scenes becomes more commoditized. Yeah. Yeah, we were um, just we just did a uh, a podcast conversation with the founder of um, of uh, Kaya. Kaya? Yeah, English? yeah, yeah. And he said people would always, you know, a lot of people would comment that Kayak was just a thin UI. It, and you know, I think he sold it for a billion and a half. And we we're like, just a thin UI. And and he's like, yeah, how important was that thin UI? It was more valuable than the underlying services it aggregated that were these complex back ends, right? Um, and and it just showed like how in this day and age someone could say it's just a thin UI, you know, it's surprising me. It just, um, it, it, evaluating. Well, I think the, 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 best way, the best way to think about it is like, how much differentiation does this UI create? In the case of Kayak, you know, presumably it was enough differentiation from Google Flights and whatever else was out there that it got them to the exit they needed. Um, I think it is true, though, that for many Gen AI-enabled applications today, um, the level of UX differentiation they've achieved today does not create enough 
differentiated value on top of, for example, the LLM, Carol. the underlying large language model to be sustainable. Yeah. I think like what what's happening is that the LLM providers themselves, most notably OpenAI, their, their UIs, their UXs are enhancing. Obviously a year ago, there was no chat GPT. There was just an API. So there was New York. Right. And so by definition, these applications had to exist. Yep. What's happened over time is that OpenAI has taken their UX more seriously and they've released chat GBT enterprise and they're thinking they're trying to be more thoughtful about what would it be like to just interface directly with us versus having to interface with an app, an intermediate application on top of it. That being said, there's real need for particularly what we call job to be done specific use cases to have job to be done specific UXs on top of these LLMs. So I'm not suggesting that ChatGPT is the right UX for the majority of business use cases. I think it's probably not. But it is true that the enhancements they have made uh, over the past year from a UX perspective, I think have put into question a number of the companies that have been built on top of right. OpenAI. Yeah. I mean, I think linguistics is where they're focused right now. And until they bring in extra linguistics like dropdowns and maps and charts and graphs, and, and they're starting to get there, right? Um, you know, there's not enough bandwidth in pure language for a lot of tasks, you know, but yeah, but we're going to see that change very rapidly. And and I can't help but think if I go get a table through ChatGPT, through the plugin that is OpenTable, at what point do I not care what plugin it is? Like, like I care now because it's a paradigm I understand. I know what OpenTable does. I'm familiar with it. But if I'm, you know, somebody who's never used OpenTable before... Why do I care what plug it? Just get me a table. I don't care who you get that table through. And I don't know how much value OpenTable now has in the world if you don't have me as the user. And more importantly, what if the restaurant owner is now going through ChatGPT to say how many tables they have available? Where does this leave OpenTable in this scenario when what they have left could be built by any developer in a week or two weeks, <laughs> if that you makes any sense, right? And and you're saying like distribution, does it matter? Like, because op OpenAI has the distribution, you know, does it does it matter? All the distribution that they spent getting their app on all these phones, how does that help them? Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's a it's a fair question. I mean, the you'd have to believe that. Um, this job to be done of you know providing help to the restaurant owner and to the booker on getting the reservation set and having a good experience uh, requires more workflow than just the find me a table at this time and go right. Like if 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 it is that simple, then I think you're right. Like open open table. Like why does it exist? I think open table's counter argument would be there's a lot of stuff we're doing other than actually just making that booking. Yeah. Like there's a whole discovery and curation experience. So we understand who you are, et cetera. Now could chat GPT, you know, ingest all those capabilities potentially. But I, I think that, I think we, we may be in danger of um, marveling at the tremendous power of something like chat GPT and forgetting that without job to be done specific UX, it may yeah, fall flat. It might, but let's look at it from a different angle. Imagine that you could trust chat GPT. <laughs> so I know that's a big thing, but but let's just say we're Is on that road that Biden's like created a you know team, and I think you've talked about this about the so, idea that companies will have the I mean countries will have their own LLMs. I couldn't agree more. I think there'll be a PBS version of an LLM. Um, I think there'll be all kinds, <laughs> but I I'm 100 uh, percent in agreement that there'll be a PBS LLM that we can all trust. I think the recent breakthrough with Anthropic, where they're able to now monitor the LLM and the neurons to see like when it hallucinates what area of the model, so we can now create confidence scores. Like that's huge. Um, I think the laws around this will create trust. I don't actually think they'll erode it. I think they'll create it. We're going to start to believe that the government's got our back, even when they don't. Um, and so. I, I kind of go to this place where I'm like, all right, Rob, that's the most positive view on the government I've heard in a while. But I, I'm, I'm all for I know. It. I just I, it's 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 either a positive view on the government or a skeptical view on citizens that trust the government blindly. Um, <laughs> but same outcome. You're saying yeah, fair enough. But I'd say that that you know 
you know, we're going to trust that, that this thing's safe. And, and so now my context will be in the LLM, not in OpenTable. So its ability to get the right table at the right place, that, that customization needs context. And OpenTable may say, we have the context. I'm going to say, I don't trust open table with that i trust my llm that hopefully is maybe even on my device right if apple has their way and so they're going to be at a disadvantage because they're not going to have the contextual data of my past conversations my past interactions my likes and dislikes they're going to have to do this without all of that and if they ask for that i'm not going to give it to it to them because the laws are going to be such that they're not going to be able to store it or keep it um, except ephemerally. Um, and so they're going to have to have some super unique algorithm that suggests food to me that I would give them my life story just to get the right table. So I think they just become transactional at that point because right now you're saying they're doing all this stuff, but all that stuff requires context and knowledge about me, context and knowledge about the restaurant, what they have to offer. Um, and if that stuff's in the layer above it, which is new for us, that that layer is so smart, that that UI layer is so smart that it actually carries our preferences and context. This came from the Boeing project, by the way. We designed the cockpit. And a big part of understanding how to automate an airplane was context. And our portion of it was the flight plan. And so we knew that when you have the flight plan, then you know what features to pop up to the pilot, right? Without the flight plan, you're having to ask them a million questions. And so <laughs> so you just sort of assume the LLM's gonna have the flight plan your, of your life. Um, and, and then what are these services underneath them? And that's the systemic change, right? Yeah, does OpenTable add Gen AI? Sure, but is that gonna last? Is that going to carry them into the future or does that just give them an immediate advantage for the next year or so that all makes us believe that they're capturing the moment and then boom, anybody that's never been on open tables doesn't care how oh, Chad GPT gets their sure. table. Sure. I know it's, it's, I it's think, a stretch, I, I think, but I, I think we're. No, I, I mean, but I, I see that future on the consumer side of things. I guess OpenTable is an interesting example that you picked because it's both a consumer application and a business application, right? right? There's a consumer-facing portion of it, and the restaurants have this whole UX to understand, okay, where, what's the layout of my tables, and how is that changing over time? And there's an analytics page on use. Like, I haven't actually been a restaurant owner, so I don't know what it looks like, but I'm envisioning what the OpenTable app looks experience looks like for a restaurant owner. And I guess this gets back to UX and um, the drawbacks of conversational UX. Um, my hunch is that for most restaurants, having that information surfaced in kind of a more generic, you know, blank canvas conversational uh, way is going to be inferior to a visualization that's custom made for that specific use case. And so this gets back to the concept of like, is ChatGPT going to be the right application for everybody? They may have a lot of the information and context to be the co-pilot to the consumer, as you described, if they live much of their life in the application. But if you're the business user, you're probably going to want a UX that's designed yeah. for your specific job to be. But done. what if that? What if those components are micro UIs, right? So yeah, maybe I want to see a map of my. You know, I want to see a map of my restaurant, and I want to see which tables are available, in a, geospatial way, right? I don't want to see this in a linguistic way. The table to the right of the, table three, the right. Um, but what if it can conjure that up on the fly, right? Now we're talking about a graphical UI. You say those are custom. They're not custom. They're one size fits all for every restaurant. What if it truly is now custom for <laughs> your restaurant? It has your ma- table mapping and and those things are conjured up on the fly, which we can see happening right now using Dolly and and just coding on the fly, right? So 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 if you have a language that's a combination of graphical UIs and language together and the language part is just navigating you to those graphical pieces right so you don't have to remember it- oh how do i get to the part where, oh you we got to log in then you go to the tab on the right then you go five tabs down you'll see blah and then click on that then go to the search box like, no you just tell it hey i added a new table to the floor plan 
great, pops up a UI, drag the table where you want it, drag it, got it. When you wrap the system holistically with AI, you start to attrit the system. The more data you have, the more unnecessary the system becomes and you never rewrote the code. You never even looked at the code to understand it. You just looked at the data in and data out. And it's sort of like we're going to, if we have AI operating our software, at some point that software gets expired. We don't even know when. I know it sounds crazy, but yeah. it's all doable. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is all doable. I like. I think it's all it's all doable. The question is, how is it likely to happen from like a software company perspective? Which is again, like as a VC, I'm thinking about it less in terms of like what's the technological possibility, and more like what are the businesses that are likely to emerge. Um, and, and the the reality is like the history of software, the arc of history, bends towards specialization. Okay. Like it, like software has started very generic. You know, and you had a database effectively, and then you had job to be done specific databases like a CRM, which is really what a CRM started as in many ways. Um, and then, you know, there are CRMs just for specific industries, like Viva Systems, one of our portfolio companies, is a pharmaceutical focused CRM. And that feels kind of niche, but that company's worth north of $20 billion now just doing that kind of specialized version of it. The argument isn't like, can Salesforce? do something that's more specialized or to use the analogy here can open ai do something that's more specialized it's are they likely to yeah right because all, all a company has ultimately is focus like that's your that's how you prioritize the resources you've got and so the argument i would make is that i think it's unlikely that uh, a company like OpenAI would build out the level of um, data integrations and ux uh, specifics necessary to serve the restaurant owner as well as a company that is using their own LLM or maybe borrowing OpenAI's LLM and building specific tooling yeah. for that that uh, audience. I 100% agree with that. I think that that's uh, I think that's absolutely um, accurate from my perspective. Um, what I see is a bunch of companies popping out uh, and I think we see a lot of VCs now talking about funding all these little gens gen AI startups, right, that are going to go and compete with all the open tables out there. There's going to be like a thousand different versions of open table. <laughs> um, and, and there are going to be two or three guys in a garage uh, because distribution's handled and, um, and customer service is handled and automation is doing their billing <laughs> and, and they don't have to lay off anyone. Um, and so I, and, and how is this happening? Well, these VCs that are funding it are going to make it happen because, you know, if it's a $3 billion fund and they're going to give half a million dollars to each one of them, that's 3,000, 6,000 little guys hitting the street that all can create better experiences. Um, and then the question is now, how does OpenTable compete with three, 300 of these, um, uh, and I don't, I don't think it's going to be open AI. I totally agree with you. It's going to be, you know, Bob and Jeff in their garage <laughs> that created a very specific experience around booking a table that, and, and they're probably going to be chefs, you know, they're not going to be developers. They're going to be chefs that understand how to experience food, um, how to pair, you know, your, your tastes and likes and your past food and maybe your lunch with your dinner, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, totally. It's not, like who cares if they I, know I mean, how to it's go? It's getting better. It's getting better for everybody. Yeah. I, I agree. And like, it's also like, it is a, um, it's an exciting kind of, um, knock on effect in this revolution, which is like, this should equip people who have not traditionally been software builders to build software. Yeah. And therefore, people that are coming from domains are going to be able to build the thing they know they need. Um, I, my, my hunch is that the very best companies, the companies that really pop out, they're going to have the domain expert. And you're also going to have someone who traditionally understands software because there is still going to be a bunch of data integration stuff in the back end. There's still going to be a bunch of enterprise security stuff you're going to have to figure out. Like, there's still, this doesn't like magically make the difficulty of building software go away. No. I think it just makes a lot of the, 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 the initial building box much yeah, easier. Yeah, I agree. It's, I, I think to demonstrate that, you said CRM. I like to always talk about the disruption of CRM because everybody thinks it's so big and 
it feels like a search engine. I feel like I'm talking to people two years ago when they said Google has, owns the search engine space and there's no threat <laughs> until there was one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I want you to imagine that every conversation that we have, including this one, an LLM is pulling out all of the biosketch, like data about you that you said, your name, blah, 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 blah. And it's just creating a biosketch, right? Biosketch could be, yeah, think of a LinkedIn page or a Wikipedia page or a resume, right? So it's, it's, it's <laughs> a document. It's not, it's not a structured table. Um, and so what's beautiful about that is I don't have to predict what I need to collect on you before. I don't need a whole team of data scientists. I don't need a schema. I don't need tables. I just need a document. And that's going to go into a vector DB and and then anytime I want to find out about your likes or dislikes, I'm just going to go there and I'm going to skip all the traditional software. I'm not going to ha need SQL connectors. I'm not going to need any of that because I've collected more information on you in two months of talking to you and probably in one conversation than any of these companies have in their structured databases. So somebody still has to build the ability to store that unstructured data, that biosketch, and the ability to mine that biosketch. But that's so much easier than implementing Salesforce and trying to build all of these queries on top of it. You know, it's something one guy is going to be able to knock out in a couple of weeks. I do think that that logic, that programming logic, that critical thinking will be necessary. But I think it just became not just equal to Salesforce, but it's he's going to be able to do things or she that you can't do with Salesforce today. I, I think that's 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 likely true. I think there's an even more fundamental point that harkens back to an earlier part of the conversation, which is that um, Salesforce has a massive business that it has to defend. Mm -hmm. And let's just say for a second that it's true that the better way to do CRM is through a conversational interface. I'm not saying it necessarily is, but instead of having the WYSIWYG mm -hmm. point and click approach that is standard uh, for Salesforce today and most of SaaS, let's say that like more of the open canvas chat interface is the, is the superior way to do CRM. If that were true, the yeah. issue isn't can Salesforce do it? Because they could afford to hire whatever they want in terms of they development. They bought Slack. I think they already it. know it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, yep. the, but the the question is like, would would pivoting the business uh, put like, is there a real um, you know innovators dilemma or counter positioning challenge for them? And I think there is in that case, right? Like because you you have to maintain the the massive amounts of revenue you currently have, and if you all of a sudden say, hey, we were wrong, this is the better interface, use this one, you're putting a lot. I mean, most of your legacy revenue at risk, and therefore yeah. business at risk, which is why disruption happens. Yeah, one of the one of the guys who used to work with me um, in a prior company is now the lead designer of Slack, um, and it's it's interesting how you know these two companies trying to figure out a complete different version of the future uh, is going to play out because there it's been I don't remember who said it at. Salesforce, but they said Slack will be the new interface for Salesforce. But, but I think they're struggling. This is my opinion. He didn't say this to me, but my opinion is that they're struggling to figure out how to maintain that. Like they've got a whole huge ship moving towards making money a certain way. Um, trying to get Slack in there, you know, at $8 a user <laughs> um, yep. it was a really tough tough shift for them to make e even though they bought it right even though they made the big move it's hard it's it, it it seems challenging for me that even even with that big move which is bold I would say very aggressive hats off um, but can they can they give Slack the room to really cannibalize that other business and uh, you know I guess we'll see but I think it's hard. It's a it's it's hard because you have to defend your core thing while also be thinking about the future, and sometimes those two things are yeah. Nice.
Well, how does how does the idea of like this thin UI layer, if you apply it to the B two B SaaS world, um, you know, you mentioned like these bigger companies are in position to really integrate AI well, but I think at the root of that is getting all these different components, these legacy systems within within them to communicate with one another, and so can... the paradigm starts to shift, right? Where like instead of wanting to create the most complete software in a little black box that you maybe let talk to some other components in limited ways, it seems like the the more there's more value in being open and able to connect with other things. But but that is like such a fundamental shift uh, to like what a product is. Can that be reconciled? Like how 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 do investors go about making investment decisions in a world like that, and also a world where where it's it's long term investments that will really have the bigger payout. It's not like there there's are ways to make financial gains in the short term using generative AI, but they tend to be kind of dead end solutions uh, on a, yeah. on a pretty rapid timeline. Like I can tell you the framework that um, I we have been using around this 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 tech trend and investing around it. Um, we are still in this phase of I mean. The reality is that these products have only been accessible to builders for a year or so. And so we're still in the very, very early days. And so as a result, a lot of the applications that have been built on top of this technology add questionable levels of value on top of the technology. And so the, the simplest way to think about it is how much value are you, the builder of this product, adding on top of the LLM? Right. If the answer is a ton then your thing is probably defensible and going to live yeah. for a while. If the answer is some, then like the underlying LLMs are getting so good and those UX experiences okay. are getting so good that like you may not be long for this world. And so like that's the very simple framework that that we've been using. Yeah, um, I like it. And I think you could divide it into like value technically or more value experientially because I think the design value is where... Sure. Yeah. When I, when I say value, I actually mean like, again, think about the business lines, like how much end business value right, you get. Right, good point. Yeah. So like, which is a combination of those two things. It's the technical, right. like what are you, what is the innovation you're adding on top of the LM, but it's also the UX and because the value could be, this is just way faster for my sales rep or support rep or whoever's using this to do it versus going to the LM. Uh-huh. And that may be a ton of value, yeah. which like, which could be, you know, defensible. If, if it's like, hey, I've got a marketing person and it saves them a little bit of time to use one of these marketing-focused Gen AI tools, um, but the reality is, like, we get eighty percent of that value, or, and it only takes you know a little bit more time to go straight to ChatGPT to get the information. That may not be as defensible. Um, one thing I do think this is like kind of undersung or underdiscussed in this world, which is like this is not a popular thing to say, but I believe it to be true. I think that boring old SaaS workflow is still going to be very important in this next era. Because I think that boring old SaaS workflow is a core part of the differentiated value add on top of an LLM. So like I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I work with a company called Ironclad, which is a legal contracting software. So if you are drafting a contract, it helps you draft the contract and you can negotiate the contract back and forth with your counterpart as well as uh, internally get approvals and such. And then you can finally sign the contract within the product. There are a ton of legal Gen AI enabled legal companies now that are helping you do things like highlight a clause and say, make this clause mutual. And then the AI comes back and actually edits the clause. And it's astounding. Like a lot of these companies that have popped up in the last few months have functionality that can do that. Um, so does Ironclad, by the way. They have their own versions of this. But what I think will ultimately make a company like like Ironclad stand out relative to all the people who have built come up to with similar uh, point solutions like that is that the job to be done of drafting and negotiating and ratifying a contract is much bigger than the narrow concept of help me iterate on a clause, get like give me AI you know advice on a clause. There's like a ton of boring SaaS flow necessary to do that, including things like permissioning. I need to make sure like Rob, do I have your permission to approve this type of contract? But actually I need to go to Josh to get approval for this kind of contract. Like it's the boring old stuff that's required to build great, durable, dependable enterprise software that is not really about generative AI Yeah, that I think will ultimately be value on top of these Yeah, we call that symbolic AI, right? It's the decision, the rigid decision-making that we have to put into it 
we're not going to have a world where AGI, and I guess we can kind of transition to the AGI side of things. We're not going to have AGI without symbolic and neural AI. I think that, you know, we were just, uh, we just launched a podcast with, um, you know, Mr. Gertzel, who popularized AGI as a term. And he's always professed that symbolic and neural combined because, and I, I think you can argue this port, point in an extreme way, which says that if we use AI to make decisions for us, in other words, asking ChatGPT to make decisions um, for us, not just talk, but make decisions, where should I go for 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 lunch? Um, that seems maybe maybe pretty benign, but when we realize that one of the dangers of AI is that it becomes more concerned about self-preservation, right? It starts to think, Excellent. I've got to protect myself. And there's a lot of people that would have said, well, just don't, just don't train it that way. Don't train it to protect itself and we'll all be fine. Except when it's being trained on watching our behavior, essentially on our words, and our words protect ourselves, then without intention, you are training it to protect itself because it's mimicking human behavior. It's not, it's, it's not symbolic, right? It's, it's basically mimicking, mimicking what it's seeing. And so it's going to make the decisions then that are based on the kinds of decisions we make as human beings, which will involve self-preservation as a component of it, potentially without alignment, right? Of course, there's always the option that we align it out of there, but I think that that's, that's where the danger comes. What if you miss it on something critical? So there is this point to saying like, uh, you know, neural AI should be there to talk. Symbolic AI should be there to make critical decisions, to your point. Um, and if that symbolic AI is just simply an algorithm that we've coded, fine, as long as as long as we know what the outcome is. And when it comes to contracts, you can't, you don't want contracting decisions to be made neurally. <laughs> you want them to be made symbolically. The thing I would say is though, it may not need to be made by a human symbolically. A human can design the rules and ask a machine to follow the rules it designed. So it's still a human doing it. But it doesn't mean that the human has to look at every single one. But um, I think it, it, what you're saying, you know, I've said in other ways, which is there is a lot of room for companies to weave between symbolic and neural AI a solution that is a, a really elegant combination of both of these that give us the security of decision making. Um, but also this beautiful, easy to use UI with components so that we don't have to log in to SharePoint anymore and try to find out where that contract is <laughs> that we're working on and yep. who commented on it last. And like, I don't really care. And whether it was signed or not, like just something else should take care of that. Um, and Isn't you should just be able to say, hey, pop up the contract for blah, blah, blah. Um, and it should pop up given that you have permission to do it. To your point, that permission being symbolic AI, not neural, like, oh, you seem like a good enough guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I think, I think there's just a lot of skills, like just a, an army. It's like an app store of these things. <laughs> um, and then we have generative and open AIs of the world that will just be our navigation of these apps. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very possible. One thing I wanted to comment on, Rob, that one of the first comments you made um, was around pricing that... and like folks worrying about, um, you know, being reluctant to drop pricing. Um, I think there's there's an even more uh, perhaps foundational change or threat that could be afoot here to an incumbent, uh -huh. which is that the pricing model itself could change. Right. So not just the levels could drop, but like, you know, SaaS software today is charged largely on a per seat basis. Uh -huh. um, there's been a growing popularity to to also charge on a per on some sort of usage basis, yeah. uh, which is interesting. Uh -huh. um, on 
but I think that like you're starting to see some experimentation on an, uh, about people charging on an outcomes basis. Yeah. So instead of charging, you know, on how many people you have using it or how much you use it, rather like, what did it achieve? Yeah. Did it achieve the thing that we wanted to? And if so, pay me on that basis. Yeah. Um, I think as this software starts to get good enough that it replaces things that were traditionally performed by services, uh, um, right? Like jobs, jobs that were traditionally done by people because they were too complex to do with software are going to increasingly be possible using software. That's a fascinating idea. The question is, do, do we, do we adapt those business models? Right? Cause a lot of services are charged on yeah. like some deliverable, like I'm hiring you to go do this thing for me. Yeah. And so it's very possible that the software we buy will start to be hired on the basis of, did you achieve the thing I asked you to do? Yeah, I, I think Gertzel would be just nodding violently right now if he heard you say that. Um, he thinks that that whole transaction will be blockchain based <laughs> and, and that, uh, you know, the whole payment system for outcomes will be handled in a crypto decentralized way. Um, so he, yeah, that's what, I think singularity net is is pretty much all about that he created. Um, I hundred percent agree with you that w- I'm not going to pay you to try. I'm going to pay you to do. Um, and yes, and the idea there is w- what's inherent in that is that now you can't hide the quality. So now when we look at reputation, right? We're not talking about surveys that are done afterwards it's built into we we know inputs and we know outputs we know how many people went in and didn't get charged and we know how many people went in and did get charged and so you can't now hide the reputation which means now the system can immediately choose the next best thing just based on usage alone and and somebody who somebody who creates an algorithm like you're talking about or a skill like you're talking about that c- comes out on one day where the other still is getting a million a day and, and yours is getting a hundred. It now rises to the top because it's a ratio. Um, now there'll be a bunch of gaming the system and blah, 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 but you know, that'll get handled. But I, man, I yeah. think, I think you're a hundred percent right. That's probably a lot sooner than it all feels because it's a solution to a pretty big problem. That's uh it's fascinating. You're already starting to see some folks experiment with it. There's some customer support companies that are starting to experiment with like, we'll charge you if we if our AI resolves your ticket. Mm-hmm. So not how many tickets are we processing or how many seats you're buying, but did we resolve your ticket? Man. Um, what an easy buying Still very decision. early to know if that's going to work. Yeah. It's early to know if it's going to work or not. Um, and there's there's risk, right? Because you don't know if the thing is going to be good and piss off your customers or piss off your customers. Like th- there's, there's yeah. risk, right? But- I think it's a very aligned business model if it starts to work. Yeah, yeah we've talked a lot about like uh, uh, just like a possible future where uh, where reputation is kind of the thing globally, uh-huh. right? Like not just within companies or surrounding their products, but along with being like ha- companies having a score, there's like customers get scores too. Like you can't, sure. like people won't be able to kind of game the system by, you know, going into a interaction pissed off, wanting to talk to a manager. Like it, everyone yep. kind of has to play in this, yeah. in this way, which which could have, you know, both good and bad yeah, outcomes. Yeah, yeah, and certainly some good ones. Yeah, I think there's also this the AI arbiter, right? Which is, to your point, you know, it it can help figure out whether these things are fraud or not, or. Because we can live in grays now. We don't have to live in black and whites, right? We can, we can, we can find out if people were truly satisfied, you know, with the experience. Um, because we have conversation to do it, you know, to say, hey, how, you know, just just write a, you know, brief sentence on how happy you were, and you'll get whatever five percent off. Um, uh, and well, there's like yeah. an interesting idea too, where like you you have these. Um, these automations running and and then you're hoping that they meet their goals in order to get paid but maybe there could be people on all sides of the equation chipping in to help get it across the finish line it could be someone who works for the company that created the automation it might be an employee within the organization that's using it, it might even be the person on the customer end who just suggests like hey I've been through this enough times to tell you that it might be better to do it this way and and then there was like a way i mean obviously like everyone could maybe share 
yeah. and some of the profits there too, which which sort of obliterates a, the clean little lines that we draw. A, yeah, and in, in my view, OpenAI is like just a channel. You know, you're going to create this plugin skill, and to your point, that's going to be an experience, and that's going to be a curated, well designed experience by somebody who knows what they're doing so that you're not automating what you do, but you automate the way you ought to do something. And and you're should... gonna subscribe to that like you would buy a book and subscribe to their system. And you're gonna subscribe to updates to that because they're gonna constantly be improving how that works and how that experience is. Um, um, but I like this other idea that, you know what? No, you're not. You're just gonna pay for the outcomes and they're gonna keep increasing the quality of it so that they get better and better outcomes. Um, and that's how they're going to get paid. So all they're going to be thinking about every day is how do I get better outcomes out of this thing? Um, so and that any attempt to game the system will put you in jail. It's not literally, but maybe literally. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on the, depends on the use case. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But just like Amazon, if you try to game the ratings, like you, your product just gets banned. Um, right. So, exactly. Wow. 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 Cool. We covered a lot. We uh, travel. We did. We, I think we just redesigned the whole future of software industry as a whole economy yeah. and the economy. Yeah. yeah. And the economy more yeah. broadly. SaaS yeah. take notes. You get to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time, Jake. We really appreciate it. Yeah. It's been a lot of, of course. fun. Thanks for yeah. having us. It's fun. It's great. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov, for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week, right here on Invisible Machines. <laughs> <laughs>